We would like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Preborn. When a mother meets her baby on an ultrasound and hears their heartbeat, it's a divine connection. And the majority of the time, she will choose life. But she can't do it without our help. Preborn needs us, the pro-life community, to come alongside her. One ultrasound is just $28. To donate, dial pound 250 and say the keyword baby or visit preborn.com. Jenna Ellis in the morning on American Family Radio. Jenna, first, good morning. Great to be with you, the queen of talk radio in America. The left does not want to honor our freedoms, and we have a responsibility to fight back. I love talking about the things of God because of truth and the biblical worldview. Fill that void with a vision that runs so deep that it dilutes the woke agenda. Well, thank you, Jenna. Right from the beginning, I knew you, so it's an honor to be with you, and you're doing really well. Proud of you. Former legal counsel to President Trump. Jenna Ellis. Well, good morning. And there are quite a few prosecutions and lawsuits going on around the country. So we're going to touch on uh, quite a few of them this morning. The first two that I want to start with with my first guest include Peter Navarro, who is being prosecuted out of Washington, D.C. for contempt of Congress. Uh, The government showed emails between Navarro and Daniel George, a senior investigative counsel for the House January 6th committee, according to The Hill. As part of its case, in the emails, Navarro told George that former President Trump had invoked executive privilege and suggested the committee reach out to the former president on that issue, not him. Accordingly, my hands are tied, Navarro wrote in the emails. And uh, his lawyer argued that the January 6th committee never reached out to President Trump, implying that Navarro failure to comply with the subpoena was therefore not willful. So that is his argument. Um, According to news sources, that trial has been going on since Tuesday, and they will be making closing arguments this morning and then giving that to the jury. Also going on in the state of Texas is Ken Paxton's impeachment, and that was has been live streamed. And I watched just a few parts of this uh, in between my day uh, yesterday, and Ken Paxton's legal team is just absolutely tearing apart this uh, sham impeachment. I was very impressed with uh, Busby, who is one of uh, Ken Paxton's attorneys and uh, who is uh, basically making everything seem like this was just a vendetta against uh, Ken Paxton by his subordinates in his own office. So we'll get uh, Luke Macias's take on this. He's the director of the Defend Texas Liberty PAC. So Luke, let's start with the Ken Paxton impeachment. I know you've been tweeting on this kind of prolifically as well and putting some clips up at your uh, Twitter page and, or well, X page, whatever we want to call it now. But what are you making of the Ken Paxton impeachment trial? So, Jenny, you're you're the lawyer on this call, right? And I I think you understand that uh, when the prosecutors are making their case, that's the time for them to score points, right? And then the defense is going to get up and bring their witnesses in and hopefully kind of maybe survive the prosecutor's case and then push back with some of their own uh, their own people. This is going to be a one, this is going to be a, a two to three week trial. Okay. So in this first trial, we see the prosecution coming up. The prosecution is led by a group of very liberal Democrats and Republicans, which is often how the Texas House does things. They hired a bunch of high powered attorneys. They came in, they bring up their star witness, 
And I don't know anyone who objectively looked at it and thought that the House prosecutors won during um, that first bout of questions. Ultimately, what you have for people who don't know what's going on in Texas is that the Texas House of Representatives is largely governed by the 61 Democrats that are in the chamber with a coalition of several dozen Republicans that often work with them to kill conservative bills and um, and pass bad legislation that the Texas Senate then has to kill. And so they, at the end of the session, decided to pass an impeachment of the most one of the most conservative attorney generals in the country. And I think everyone's kind of amazed that at a time you talked about Navarro already, you're in the middle of all of this political weaponization of the justice system. We are seeing people, patriots, be targeted by the other side who says, hey, if we can't beat them, uh, let's just put them in jail. And even if we do beat them, if they don't admit that they believe we beat them in every single way, then we'll put them in jail, too. And that's the attitude. And sadly, there are some Republicans that are going along with that in Texas. But I do think that the Texas Senate has been much more responsive to the voice of the people. And and it seems like the Senate is very unlikely to convict Paxton at this time. Which is really good news, uh, Luke Macias. I think that that, that is a, an appropriate take in terms of what's uh, been going on in the Ken Paxton trial, but also just around the country. It, as I was putting the show together today, looking at all of the different lawsuits that are now just coming uh, into the trial court and, and uh, further just process this this is a prolific weaponization of government along all fronts and that includes this targeting of ken paxton and i think you're right that normally uh, when the prosecutors get up and that's their attempt to make their case in chief then the best the defense attorneys can do is try to tear that down through cross-examination and i think that that was one of the best parts of the entire uh, trial over the last couple of days has been the cross-examination by Ken Paxton's team, just tearing that down and, and showing a completely different motivation that you've described. And so uh, where do we head from here in terms of the impeachment? Because th- th- this is one of the frustrations I think that everybody has with a weaponized government is that the impeachment process, whether it's on the federal level with the president, we saw the two sham impeachments of of Donald Trump or with uh, another state level office holder like the attorney general in Texas, the impeachment power should be exercised when there's a legitimate legal basis, not as a political power move. And, and that's what I think really is being highlighted through this trial. So it's really interesting because at least the Texas Senate has basically set a criminal level standard. Okay. They've said, Uh, You have to be convinced of these articles of impeachment beyond a reasonable doubt in order to vote to impeach. Right. And then Dan Patrick ruled on the first day that Ken Paxton couldn't be compelled to testify again, kind of in line with the way these criminal proceedings would be done. But the House managers literally got up. Andrew Murr from the Texas House gets up and says, hey, wrongs don't have to necessarily be crimes. I mean, he's telling the Senate. I don't know that we're going to prove to you that a single crime happened, but if you think he did something wrong, you should overturn the election of the duly elected attorney general of the state of Texas, right? And so if that's the standard, where where are we at? Here's the cool thing about what impeachment is in Texas compared to federally. 
We've only done it twice in Texas history, once in 1973 for some district judge in the Rio Grande Valley. Who knows? There's probably some cartel war going on one side, the other side. They're probably all bad down there. And then you have one governor in 1917 who gets impeached in a political way. And the people of Texas are so ticked that they elect the first woman governor to replace him, who is his wife in 1918. So that's the two times it's happened. And the reason I think it hasn't happened since then is because politicians generally, even though they're really flawed, knew that this wasn't just a weapon to throw around. So I think the reason the Texas Senate has to put it to bed is so that this doesn't become what we're seeing happen all over the country, which is, hey, you don't like a political rival, team up with the other side and put it to bed. And to your point, this is happening across the country, but it's happening with Democrats, Democrat district attorneys, rogue George Soros-funded DAs, Democrat legislatures, Democrat secretary of states. They're going to say they're not even going to put Donald Trump on the ballot. That's how bad it is. And then in Texas, deep red Texas, we have some liberal Republicans who say, hey, let's just impeach one of the most conservative attorney generals in the country. So uh, that's where I think people are very frustrated in a red state. Why are Republicans doing this to our own instead of just letting the process go and respecting the voters' decision? And that's a great point that that the majority of the weaponization of government, in fact, I mean, I would I would put this at 99 percent is from Democrats toward Republicans. But this in Texas is different because it's Republicans turning on their own and actually setting a very bad precedent uh, in the state of Texas. And this is why hopefully the Senate will see that this can't just become the standard that whoever controls the majority and wants to target their political opposition, they can use the power of impeachment to then um, overturn the will of the American uh, voters and and say that's how we're going to get them out of office. I mean, it is such a long uh, process. I mean, this is going to be several weeks in Texas and taking up the time that uh, the, the, the Texas uh, citizens and taxpayers are, are having to expend uh, time and resources that the Senate isn't doing something else. And so uh, hopefully the precedent that's in place is that the Senate will just uh, smack this down. But I want to turn uh, Luke Masias, he's the director of the Defend Texas Liberty PAC, um, in the last about five minutes we have left, um, over to the Navarro case as well and get your mm. comments on that. Because um, this was actually a fascinating a conundrum just from watching this because uh, in full disclosure for listeners, I was subpoenaed by the January 6th committee as well. And there were arguments of executive privilege, of the composition of the committee was flawed. I mean, all of these things that I think rightly should have survived, but didn't. And so um, most of us went and sat in the seat and, um, and, and ultimately, uh, you know, responded to the subpoena. And so Navarro went a different direction and said that he believed that Donald Trump had invoked executive privilege. And the interesting thing is that the government did show those emails saying that Navarro had told the January 6th committee that former President Trump had invoked executive privilege and said, reach out to him, not me, I can't do anything about it. And then the committee never followed up on that. They have now just uh, recommended and uh, now Navarro has been charged with contempt of Congress. And the, I think the question is going to come down to whether this was willful and what responsibility, if any, 
uh, there will be arguments that Navarro should have followed up unless there was some finding of executive privilege or the jury is going to say, well, listen, the committee didn't follow up. And so he had given them their response. So how can this be willful? So your thoughts on this, Luke? Uh, here's my, my honest assessment of, of this situation. I think you lay it out incredibly well for, for listeners is that I wish Republicans would use their power in a similar way and, and not because it's necessarily a good thing what's happening to Navarro. But I believe the only way to stop the madness, and there's various different perspectives on this, the only way to stop this madness is for Republicans to give Democrats a taste of their own money. I've never seen a Republican Congress be this aggressive um, against Joe Biden's administration. And if they were, then maybe we could start to put some of these tactics to bed, right? Uh, that's what usually tends to happen. You walk in the room and everybody starts pulling out their guns and they get bigger guns and bigger guns and bigger guns. And finally, everyone goes, maybe we should just lay this down a little bit and continue to disagree. The problem is that Democrats continue to use every single ounce of power they're given to prosecute their political enemies. And they're doing it to Navarro. Uh, so I just think that it's incredibly sad to see. I do understand the nuance, the reality that some people do testify. But ultimately, we're just getting to a point that the, these entire these entire efforts are only meant to find more scalps to prosecute. The January 6th commission did not change a single American's mind. I, I, I find it super fascinating when you look at polling going into the committee and when the committee is done, right? Republicans' minds didn't change, independents' minds didn't change, and Democrats' minds didn't change. So this is reflective of the, of the D.C. swamp so much. They spend all their time doing, you know, all of these show trials, and they don't do anything that Americans are actually following or actually changing the minds of those American citizens. That's a great point that the Democrats will use every ounce of their power and, in my view, even go well beyond the margins and, and the boundaries of their power to get their political opponents. And yet, Kevin McCarthy and the Republican majority Congress can't even get it together to put to, uh, an impeachment inquiry against Joe Biden, who clearly fits within mm -hmm the scope of the impeachment clause. And I, I said from day one that the Republican majority should not just do tit for tat. We should not just day one say, OK, well, we're impeaching Joe Biden because Donald Trump was mm -hmm. impeached, but actually wait until there is if there was going to be a basis. But now that there is, it's so true that the Republicans just stand back. They're spineless. They don't even exercise their legitimate authority to go after legitimate bad actors, much less in the way of stopping the Democrats from an abuse of power. So uh, Luke Macias, really appreciate your takes. You can find him on social media at Luke, M-A-C-I-A-S-T-X for Texas. And we will be right back with more here on Jenna Ellis in the Morning. Welcome back to Jenna Ellis in the Morning on American Family Radio. 
continuing to talk about all of these different lawsuits and prosecutions across the country, uh, and really prosecution is is the right <laughs> word as well as persecution. And some of that also can come in the form of uh, just simply pressure and uh, litigation in the civil realm. And uh, Elon Musk on a Twitter now now known as X has been talking about the the interesting problem with continuing to protect freedom of speech uh, because a lot of this as well from the leftists and their agenda in uh, just completely foreclosing any speech that they disagree with or any opinions uh, comes through the form of uh, advertising dollars and putting a lot of pressure on some of these uh, big tech platforms to continue to just do their been to their will. And so Elon Musk tweeted this uh, a couple of days ago. Based on what we've heard from advertisers, the Anti-Defamation League seems to be responsible for most of our revenue loss. Giving them maximum benefit of the doubt, I don't see any scenario where they're responsible for less than 10% of the value destruction, so approximately $4 billion. Document discovery of all communications between the ADL and advertisers will tell the story. So Oren McIntyre, who is a uh, host and columnist for The Blaze, tweeted, the ADL uh, files thread will be lit. And he joins me now. So uh, this is really fascinating to see uh, yet another, I think, repository of the Twitter files that will continue to show what is going on with censorship and speech on these social media platforms, uh, Oren. So, so what do we expect from this this now threat of a lawsuit from Elon Musk against the Anti-Defamation League? Yeah, Jenna, thanks for having me. I think it's so critical for a lot of conservatives to understand the role that these organizations play in limiting their speech behind the scenes. Of course, we know the First Amendment is supposed to be protecting our speech when it comes to government organizations. But when we have places like the ADL, when we have places uh, like the Southern Poverty Law Center constantly pressuring advertisers behind the scenes, they are making sure to shut down people's ability to communicate on platforms like Facebook, like Twitter, uh, like YouTube. And that seriously censors the kind of speech that conservatives can have. And so Elon, by opening up this process, could reveal how much power an organization like the ADL uh, wields to kind of shut down the discourse in America. Yeah, and, and I think this is so important to have full transparency because a lot of people on these social media platforms that have really become one of the most a prolific and widely used public squares for discourse and political discourse and news and information. Uh, the, the this really is is the public forum, and to have full disclosure of what is going on in terms of censorship and the pressure, I think, is going to be really important to understand how and why these types of organizations like the ADL, the SPLC, have this power and how they're wielding it. And so, a lot of people have. Asked asked Elon, including our, our good friend over at uh, Libs of TikTok, have asked Elon to provide full transparency. And he has suggested that he possibly will. How, if, if anything, would that type of transparency allow for maybe some of this power brokering that goes on behind the scenes to then just get dispelled? 
Well, that's a great question because, of course, we saw the Twitter files. And when we saw those Twitter files, we learned the amount of influence that the government itself, our intelligence agencies, our police services, have directly the, the willingness for them to interfere with elections by manipulating social media content, the willingness to censor private citizens, to demand censorship on a regular basis, to pressure and be in contact. And that was directly from the government, of course. So that's one thing. But then we're going to see how all of this is impacted by this private organization. But I think a lot of people are aware that many of these private organizations are not entirely private themselves, that they are also often receiving funding. They have people, these, uh, these NGOs or these other organizations are revolving doors of former government operatives, former office holders, former bureaucrats who have influence, who have financial and political connections. And we're going to see how much the government itself might be involved in certain aspects of this, making sure that this pressure is continually applied. Now, we don't still know, I think, to a large extent, what is, what's the continued relationship between most of these social media companies and the deep state. And this is going to be a similar scenario. Even if this information is revealed, will it really change the amount of influence these groups wield? Will the transparency itself actually bring about a change in their behavior? That's going to be the big question. I think that's a really fascinating point that we don't know how much of the deep state is uh, funding these organizations and how many uh, different connections in terms of former uh, former government agents or anything are actually involved in some of these nonprofits and NGOs. That's a really fascinating question. And what, if anything, a, a case like the Missouri v. Biden case that is attempting uh, out of the state of Missouri through the Twitter files to say that, that no, the government cannot uh, circumvent the First Amendment and use these big tech companies as a way to censor and silence Americans' speech. But how much then would that relate to an NGO if they are, for example, like you said, getting funding from the government? Yeah, again, like the a lot of these people survive on sinecures from the government just secondhand, and they all kind of know this. It's a it's an open working relationship. Uh, the, I mean, the FBI is trained by the ADL specifically. So j- just in that instance, we know that there's a open working relationship in which the ADL informs the policy and basically the moral understanding of the FBI. And let's not forget the ADL has pulled out all kinds of crazy assertions. They've said things like opposing Antifa is a sign of uh, hate and anti-Semitism. They've said that the OK sign, the hand sign saying OK, is, is a white supremacist sign. They, they've said phrases like, it's OK to be white, are hate speech. These are people who have a very particular agenda that has very little to do with their stated goal. They are political actors that, are, that could very well be funded by the very government you know, that, that they are supposed to, in theory, be policing, be correcting, be informing. I'm speaking with Oren McIntyre, who is a host and columnist at The Blaze. And 
it, it, it's frustrating, I think, to a lot of people to see how much power these organizations have and comparing and contrasting that to the conservative organizations that attempt to have influence and access in D.C., but are always a little bit on the outside. And so how do organizations like this even have this much power and have the opportunity to influence policy decisions on that level and have these definitions of whatever they want to define as racism or anti-Semitism, well, then that's the standard because it's according to ADL. Why does anybody even care? Well, I mean, there's a lot of answers to that question. It's really a multifaceted, uh, you know, uh, scenario. But I think there's a couple of core things. One is that these people have the, you know, they have a level of narrative that runs with kind of what the left is trying to do, right, that they, they are providing something that is very helpful. They also are wielding, I think, the idea of civil rights, something that a lot of people, you know, understandably uh, feel is, is a self-justifying thing. They don't want to see hatred towards certain groups. They don't want to see bigotry out there. But at the same time, they are abusing that kind of language. They're abusing that kind of status. They're stepping in and saying that they, you know, uh, they can wear that mantle and then they are taking it and they are driving it directly towards their own political ends. And obviously, there's also a scenario where I think conservatives have just not been willing to kind of put their money where their mouth is. A lot of conservatives talk about wanting to build organizations to have influence to those kind of things. But if it doesn't immediately turn a profit, if it's not immediately something that wins an election, then they just kind of give up and walk away as where the left understands that building these multi-generational institutions that don't immediately turn around and make you a bunch of money or secure an election, but slowly accumulate Accumulate cultural power over time, building these things like best practices, building these uh, these educational tools. They have a long-term influence, especially in our in the way that our professional managerial class handles the you know the operations of things like the, the deep state. The deep state is entirely built on this bureaucratic infrastructure. It thrives on these kind of corporate HR best practices, standardized uh, deliveries of this kind of message. And so uh, something like the ADL is purpose-built to feed into that narrative structure when they're trying to do their training. So let's talk about Elon Musk as as a weird uh, X factor. No, no pun intended there, right? Uh, Because he's he's to me a really fascinating part of this whole uh, equation now as we are moving forward toward hopefully better precedent and more transparency. He's obviously not a conservative, but he's also really for free speech. But at the same time, the now CEO, uh, Linda Yaccarino, is implementing these standards for uh, speech through through the GARM standards that have a lot of implicit problems. And I haven't seen Elon address that at all on X, which is very interesting. But he does, I think he has shown that he is for free speech overall, even things that that probably 99% of us would agree are hateful or they're uh, not favorable speech, it's still the right of people to hold opinions. And and he is for that. And so how is is that sort of X factor going to play into all of this in, in your mind through the transparency and through a kind of really getting to the to the bottom of exactly how far the deep state's tentacles are in all of this? 
Well, Elon is what well, is is a rogue elite. He's something that a lot of us have have kind of been waiting for. He's somebody who wields a massive fortune, a large amount of social clout, a large amount of influence in the private and public sectors, and that kind of shields him from the normal problems that would come with opposing the deep state, with opposing uh, many aspects of kind of our government apparatus that that uh, kind of spreads both again across the public and private spe- uh, sector. And so that really allows him to leverage, you know, uh, th- that influence to ask questions I don't think anyone else would ask. I, going after the ADL is a big thing. That's a dangerous thing. He's going to be called all kinds of terrible names, even though it's very clear that the ADL is well beyond its stated mission and is out there to hurt to, and doing specifically political acts. Uh, it, it doesn't matter he's going to get a lot of blowback for that. So it takes a lot of courage on his part to do that. Now, I think Elon's got a, a pretty good message when it comes to free speech. He seems relatively dedicated to it. Here and there, there's been some mistakes. I think uh, the appointment of you know, his, his current CEO is, is, uh, certainly has a big question mark on it. But I think his ability to leverage that, to bring that out, to bring that to the forefront, is going to spook uh, the, the ADL a good bit. Discovery could be a big problem for them. Of course, we don't know. We don't know what, what's all there. But it, it certainly seems like that's not something that they kind of want in the limelight. They don't want the, the amount of power that they wield, or the amount of connections they have, the way that they do business kind of put out there. And so Elon's ability to kind of cut through the Gordian knot, demand that, uh, that transparency, and do it in the name of a value that I think a lot of people share is a really powerful thing. It is. I would agree with you on that. And I think that X right now, out of all of the big social media platforms, obviously Twitter was uh, was the biggest. And I, I love the fact that Elon has now taken that over. It's not one of these smaller platforms that's just trying to get off the ground, but he's actually trying to take this big behemoth and, and move it in the right direction. And I'm grateful to see conservatives that are staying on the platform that are openly communicating with Elon and he's responding and engaging in this instead of taking this kind of anti-big tech or, well, if you're not fully conservative, then we're not on board. Uh, You know, some of these positions that sometimes conservatives tend to take, I'm glad to see a lot of uh, big names and big accounts that are willing to engage in the platform and continue to try to call for transparency and to say that we want to make this better because it, it is an interesting collaborative effort. And the more pressure that uh, can be put on the the idea of transparency and making sure we see what's actually going on, I think will be helpful. So in just the last couple of minutes I have with you, um, Oren McIntyre from The Blaze, uh, how how do you view conservatives' engagement on X and, and how we should be thinking about continuing to, uh, to affirmatively put in our resources and time there instead of what conservatives basically do best is usually boycott, which is the total opposite direction. Yeah, that, that's a really interesting thing about social media is it's a, it's a product that is valuable because everyone's on it, right? It's, it's not like going even to like Disneyland or something where you don't go and then Disney loses money. What, what conservatives have often not understood about social media is that fracturing social media makes it lose its own power. So when they run to other platforms, smaller platforms, they lose their reach by going to those other platforms. 
and they kind of ghetto themselves in, in, in an echo chamber. Uh, there are many smaller platforms that I like that I think are still valuable because they give people an option if they've been banned off of the platforms. So I'm not saying that those shouldn't exist. But it is encouraging, like you said, to see someone like Elon who understands that, that capturing a serious uh, kind of node in the network, that capturing a public square and making it a place where conservatives can actually speak again is something that matters quite a bit because you're not just doing it somewhere in the wilderness. You're doing it somewhere out uh, where people can actually hear you. You can actually go viral. Things can actually make a difference. And we can see how much you know all of this makes a difference because something like the hashtag ban the ADL you know got a lot of this moving. And so there's a there's a very real way that conservatives can step back into this public square. They can acknowledge a lot of truths on the platform that they weren't allowed to acknowledge, like men can't become women, you know, (laughs) those those kind of things. And so that means that this is a place where I again, I don't think there's anything wrong with having a footprint in other platforms, but they need to be on those main ones making their voices heard. Yes. And, and great points, Aaron McIntyre from The Blaze. You can follow him on X. And we'll be right back with more here on Jenna Ellis in the Morning. According to a recent study of hundreds of post-abortive women, 60% of women reported that they would have preferred to give birth if they had received more support from others or had more financial security. And that's where Preborn steps in. Preborn is there for women in their darkest hour, deciding between the life and death of their precious child. You see, the reality is women are being pressured to make this fatal decision and are being told that their babies are just clumps of cells. Preborn welcomes women with God's love and introduces them to the beautiful life growing inside of them, which doubles their baby's chance at life. When you support preborn, you are not only supporting women, you empower them. Your donation of $28 will help a woman make a choice that she won't have to regret for the rest of her life and gives her the ultimate blessing, life. Your love can save a life. Just dial pound 250 and say the keyword baby. That's pound 250 baby or visit preborn.com. That's preborn.com. Welcome back to Jenna Ellis in the morning on American Family Radio. So more going on with prosecutions, including a federal prosecutor is preparing to indict Hunter Biden September 29th. So this coming from CNBC, federal prosecutors plan to ask a grand jury to indict Hunter Biden, the son of President Joe Biden. Before September 29th, they revealed in a court filing Wednesday, the charges that special counsel David Weiss will seek against Hunter Biden were not disclosed in the filing in the U.S. District Court in Delaware. The new filing comes six weeks after a planned sweetheart plea deal. And sweetheart is my characterization, not CNBC's, but I think that's accurate. A sweetheart plea deal for Hunter to resolve the charges of tax and weapons crimes fell apart when a judge questioned its conditions during a hearing in court. So this will be very fascinating. Not a lot of people are 
uh, really convinced that there's going to be a lot of accountability for Hunter Biden. And it was really interesting to see how the judge even inquiring about that then resulted in the uh, dismissal to then bring these new charges in perhaps what prosecutors may be considering as a more friendly uh, venue and our forum shopping. Also, a judge orders Texas to remove buoy barriers across the Rio Grande, and Governor Abbott is immediately appealing that decision. So while Ken Paxton's impeachment is going on in the state of Texas, Texas is having to remove the 1,000-foot-long floating border barrier that it installed in the middle of the Rio Grande, according to the Wall Street Journal. And a federal judge ruled on Wednesday that forbade Texas from lengthening the barrier made up of giant orange buoys anchored by concrete blocks. Uh, there are a lot of pictures of these actually on social media. You can see them. A lot of the, the leftists and the Democrats were totally outraged saying that this was, you know, against um, you know, humanity and they were they were totally melting down about this. And so now uh, the, the judge has ordered the state to remove the existing barrier by September 15th. Texas installed the buoy barrier in July as part of its continuing campaign known as Operation Lone Star to fight illegal immigration into the state. So almost immediately after the announcement, according to the Washington Examiner, Governor Greg Abbott announced he would appeal the decision, expressing a willingness to take the legal battle to the Supreme Court if need be. He said Texas will appeal. Today's court decision merely prolongs President Biden's willful refusal to acknowledge that Texas is rightfully stepping up to do the job he should have been doing all along. So good on Greg Abbott for at least appealing that decision and uh, bad on Greg Abbott, in my opinion, for not uh, doing more to secure the Texas border. And we have uh, Don Huffines on quite prolifically. Uh, He's a good friend of the show who also says, along with our friend Alan West, and, and I agree with their assessment, that that Governor Abbott could use Article 1, Section 10 of the U.S. Constitution to declare an invasion and to actually secure his border and doesn't need any permission to do that. That's the plain language of the Constitution. And this just goes back into what we've been talking about throughout this whole show and, and really for the last several months, that the Republicans seem to be so weak and not using the power that is in the plain text of the Constitution or in statutory authority, and they seem to be so reticent to actually stand up and get anything done. And yet, the Democrats and the leftists on the other side are willing to create all kinds of absurd legal theories and go well outside the plain language and the text of the Constitution to try to prosecute their political opponents and try to get literally anything done that they think is in their own best interest. And that includes currently this whole argument that you've probably been hearing about about the 14th Amendment and some states that are seeking to take President Trump off of the ballot uh, next November. And this may even be for the primary um, as well. But I think a lot of these these uh, legal analysts and these, these theorizers are suggesting that, that President Trump will become the Republican nominee. So they're looking more to the general election. And the, the argument 
plainly is that they're trying to take the 14th Amendment, Section 3, that says no person shall be a senator or representative in Congress or elector of president and vice president or hold any office, civil or military, under the United States or under any state who, having previously taken an oath as a member of Congress or as an officer of the United States or as a member of any state legislature or as an executive or judicial officer of any state to support the Constitution of the United States, shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same or given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof. But Congress may, by a vote of two-thirds of each house, remove such disability. So in context, the 14th Amendment is part of the Reconstruction Amendments after the Civil War. And in the historical context and the ratification of the 14th Amendment, this was designed to rebuild the Union and specifically contemplate the Confederacy and and the people who were involved in seceding from the Union to then come back and be a part of the United States government. And so this finding of engagement of insurrection or rebellion against the same was contemplated in the context of the Civil War. Now, what the left is doing is trying to use this term insurrection and without any sort of judicial finding, without any uh, precedent or a finding by any sort of competent arbiter, just say that we are labeling what happened on January 6th, uh, 2021 at the Capitol as an insurrection. And because we believe that President Trump participated in that, even though he wasn't even at the Capitol, and we all have seen the clips that he said, you know, peacefully and patriotically make your voices heard. uh, They, these leftists are suggesting, though, that he still engaged in a quote unquote insurrection. And because of that engagement in a so-called insurrection, he is now disqualified pursuant to the 14th Amendment. This is an absurd legal theory. It is well outside of the plain meaning of the text. And we've already had an impeachment and a competent arbiter of law and fact called the United States Senate make a determination on the impeachment and potential removal and disability of President Trump on this exact same question. So this is a a ridiculous legal theory that, again, is just the leftists and the political opponents of Donald Trump trying to manipulate the legal system and trying to impose their will on who you and I and the, the rest of the American citizens can vote for. They're trying to disqualify him from the ballot. These types of 14th Amendment cases have already been tried in other contexts and thankfully have failed, uh, even out of the state of Georgia. There was a a case uh, against uh, Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene. She actually had to go and testify. This was, um, I believe, late last year, where the same argument was that because she supposedly participated in a quote-unquote insurrection on January 6th uh, by objecting to the electors, 
uh, on January 6th, which is part of the Electoral Count Act. It's part of the process. And Democrats, members of Congress have done that historically. They did that with Donald Trump in 2016. But uh, because they they are claiming that Marjorie Taylor Greene participated in an insurrection, she's now disqualified from holding federal office. That case ultimately failed. And by the way, I don't see anyone coming after those lawyers and trying to criminalize the practice of law or suggesting that any of the lawyers who are developing these, what I would think are patently absurd absurd legal ideas. No, still, nobody is suggesting that they should be disbarred or disgraced uh, simply because they are bringing these types of challenges. This is what the process is for. And thankfully, these types of arguments are not going further. And so we're going to have to kind of wait and see in terms of how this argument is being applied to President Trump. Some uh, legal scholars and, and analysts are suggesting that there doesn't even need to be a finding. And, and I think they're completely ignoring the fact that there already was that finding in the Senate. And removal in terms of a disability to hold a public office as an officer of the United States, that is a uh, that is a penalty under impeachment and removal. So if President Trump had been convicted in the Senate on the second impeachment, that would have been a disability that the Senate could have made a finding for. So he he's already been tried uh, in a, a competent forum for this exact same question. So now the leftists are suggesting, well, we don't even need to have a, a, a finding on this. We are just going to, in our wisdom as people who opine on X or in, in some of these uh, opinion columns, we're just going to suggest that he's already disqualified because we've determined, labeled this an, an insurrection, we've determined that uh, President Trump isn't qualified, so therefore take him off the ballot. I mean, if, if that's not election interference, I don't know what is. And it's, it's absolutely... Uh, shameful that these people are trying to manipulate the text of the U.S. Constitution just to persecute their political adversaries and try to suggest that uh, President Trump isn't competent to be on the ballot and let the American people decide. Um, if if a, enough of the American people around the country don't want him to be president, then they won't vote for him. But just like uh, the, the issues that we've previously discussed on the show with um, the RNC and uh, the, the Republican Party apparatus trying to disqualify various individuals like my friend Robbie Starbuck um, during the midterms out of Tennessee District 5 for not being a legitimate Republican, even though, yes, under the rules, the party can have rules in terms of who can run for the nomination on their party ballot. It's still a way to manipulate the ballot and to not allow the people for in that instance in Tennessee District 5 to determine whether they wanted Robbie Starbuck to represent them in Congress or not. So these are really critical issues that are facing the country. There's continued weaponization of government, of the U.S. Constitution and lawfare that continues. And where are the Republicans? Where are the where is the pushback on all of this? Because we've seen all of these efforts to target political opponents, and yet, uh, as I mentioned in the first segment of this show, a Republic, the Republican majority can't even get it together to even impeach uh, Joe Biden when there are clearly constitutional grounds to at least, at the very least, open an impeachment inquiry.
So where are the people who are actually representing what you and I and uh, the rest of the conservative view of the country would like to see? And where is that exercise of power? This is one of the things that that I do have to say I have I I really respect and have seen of Governor Ron DeSantis in the state of Florida because he will use the power that is within the Florida state constitution and work with the legislature to make sure to push through a conservative agenda that will outlast his tenure as governor. And regardless of who you support for president in 2024, we need someone, whether it's Governor DeSantis, President Trump, Vivek Ramaswamy, anyone else who is running, we need someone in office who is willing to exercise the powers in the U.S. Constitution that are granted, stay within the margins of the law and the Constitution, don't make, you know, totally patently absurd uh, manipulation arguments just to push through your political agenda, even though, I mean, that's not creating legal theories, that's that's fine, but to understand how you can use your power to then ultimately bring about real results for the American people. The left, unfortunately, is far, far better at doing that than the right. And we need to change that in this country. Otherwise, we are going to continue to see not only the politicization of uh, the of the country, of the law, of the justice system, but we're also going to see the left continue to manipulate their power while the right sits back and just says, well, we'll defend. We'll defend, but we'll never go on offense. And we, we need to start. We also need to stand up and uh, speak out, continually be using the platforms that God has given us, continue to engage not only on social media, if that's where uh, your forum is, in our civil society, in our churches, in uh, your children's schools, in all aspects of life. We need to make sure that we are consistently engaging as we the people, because we are the ones who have the blessings of liberty and God and his sovereignty has given given us a great heritage in this country that we can engage. And so just quickly before we wrap up the show, I want to just say a word as well about Coach Kennedy. A lot of you have been following his saga for the last um, close to a decade. I think uh, this case started in 2015, and he won a major Supreme Court victory for playing after games. And he uh, came back and won his first game back after uh, he came back to that high school. And after winning a U.S. Supreme Court case to get his first coaching job back and igniting a firestorm over praying in public schools, Joe Kennedy resigned after only one football game with Bremerton High School. Kennedy's decision was not exactly a surprise. He said the game was, quote, a fine bow on top of his Supreme Court victory, which cleared the way not only for his return after an eight-year absence, but for him to pray on the field. So we wish Coach Kennedy the best. Continue to stand up. That is a long time to fight, but he did it with grace and with purpose and gave us a really great Supreme Court victory. We need more of those victories. So let's move forward in the trust and perseverance in our Lord and Savior. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast may not necessarily reflect those of the American Family Association or American Family Radio. We'd like to thank our sponsors, including Preborn. 
Preborn has rescued over 200,000 babies from abortion, and every day their network clinics rescue 200 babies' lives. Will you join Preborn in loving and supporting young moms in crisis? Save a life today. Go to preborn.com.